to Psalms to God, Season 2, Episode 14, The Beginning of Church. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.psalmstogod.com. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, New King James Version. Welcome back to the Psalms to God podcast. This is your host, Ree. We are going to start a series on the New Testament church. We talked about what the world looked like before the establishment of Israel. We talked about what it looked like at the establishment of Israel. And now I want to start talking about what it looked like right after the crucifixion of Christ, right as the church was starting to form and the apostles were starting to spread the word. The basis for our modern church system. And there's still a lot that I want to go back and talk about when it comes to Israel and the Old Testament and even some before Israel, but I want to kind of get um, a feel for the history altogether and then go back and talk about some of these other topics. It's really strange to me um, how much we avoid the history of the church i was thinking about it and i was trying to recall a sermon on the book of acts um just an aside most of these episodes will be based on the book of acts because that is the book that covers the history of the church and it's interesting because i mean you can read the book of acts and get a pretty good idea um but it's nice to also read historical texts and things like that to just get an idea of what things looked like during the first century and the years that came after that, all the way up into the Reformation, into um, Puritanism and, um, you know, religious freedom, moving into the West and into the United States and on into today. There's a lot of things that I think people don't really expect or realize because we don't talk about those things. And it's odd to me because in any other institution or organization, you would heavily harp upon how things began and how things started. Um, when I joined my sorority, you know, they make you learn the entire history of the sorority from who created it to, um, you know, what the founding principles were, how they changed over time, you know, where it was founded, the date, all, like just lots of details and even going to college you know it's I didn't there is a class to learn the history of the college I didn't take it but even without taking it I still picked up a lot of history about the university um, you know most people know that that school the school that I went to 
started out as an agricultural school and it was a military school and then it transitioned into an engineering school it's very odd to be in something and not be able to really define how it came to be what it is in its current state and to not know a lot about the history most christians will tell you oh yeah jesus died on the cross and then the disciples spread the word and now we're christians um but they won't really have any solid information on how that happened what it looked like what the early church structure was there's just this an assumption that it looked like what we have today and it did not that is not true at all so i wanted to get into that and i must admit some of the motivation for doing this series is personal and accountability for my own self a while back the congregation that i'm a part of decided they wanted to launch small groups. For those who are not familiar with small groups, it's a method in which you kind of imitate some of the principles of the first century church by um, creating more intimacy within your church. So if you go to like a very large church, um, I think this is probably more common with very, very large churches or mega churches, um, it's impossible to know everybody in in the congregation. However, it is possible for small groups of people to meet with each other and to become support systems for each other. So if you look at Christ, there was Christ and then he had the 12 disciples, but they weren't the only people following him. As we go through the book of Acts, you'll see it says that when they met after you know he ascended into heaven, there were 120 disciples in the upper room. That was a lot of people. 12 of them were super close to Christ, but the other ones were just kind of in the mix. They were just part of the entourage, if you will. And so it's kind of the same thing. Like I can see people you know, once a week or something like that, and I can be friendly with them and I know who they are by face, I might know their name, but then I have this particular group that I am close to, that I can call up and ask to pray for me, or I can talk to these people directly about my spiritual concerns and they can talk to me and um, we meet more regularly and more frequently, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of times these groups are based upon common interests. Like you'll have maybe like a mother's group or a couple's group or a women's group, um, a men's group, singles what you know whatever and so um they wanted to kick this off and as part of that process they put some of us through training because you know you have to have leaders for these groups people who are going to say like okay we're going to meet and i'm going to make sure everybody talks and you know kind of gets the ball rolling and so those of us who volunteered to lead a small group had to take a discipleship training and they have this manual. It's a book by some random people. I have no idea who these people are. And as you can tell by the way I just said that, I personally did not like the book. I don't care for it. And so, um, you know, we spent 12 weeks going over this book where these people are trying to tell us how to lead a small group. And it really felt like a class that you would take. And while they had scriptural references, I came to the conclusion that it would be better to just read the book of Acts. So when I was talking to one of the elders, that's what I said. I was like, why didn't we just read the book of Acts? It would have been 
so much better to just do a study on the book of Acts. Christ would not have expected us to have this sort of structure and not told us how to create it. Like, that doesn't make sense. And so the elder was like, yeah, you're right. I think you should do a study on the book of Acts. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go do a study on the book of Acts. And dot, dot, dot. I did not do a study on the book of Acts. Um, I got bogged down in doing studies on other things. And, um, you know, recently it's kind of been tugging on my heart. And it was already part of what I wanted to talk about in this series, um, this season. And so... I was like, you know, now now is better than any other time. We're going to do this this episode on the book of Acts. We're going to do a series. And this is also going to be accountability for me because I have to make these episodes and talk about the book of Acts, which means I have to do the study um, to be able to do the episode. So it's for me just as much as it is for you. So um, for this episode, I read the book... Uh, the chapters one through six. I don't know if we're actually going to get all the way through there because there's a lot of information, but we'll go as far as we can and then um, we'll resume next week. So I want to start in chapter one, of course. Um, (laughs) No, I want to start by saying that the book of Acts is to the church what the books of Moses are to Israel. Um, Moses wrote down, you know, the law and what God said. And, you know, he wrote about like the feast days and how they were supposed to execute things and how they were supposed to design the tabernacle and the temple and all these other things. And he basically wrote like a manual, which would have been the core of their religious beliefs. Everything else in the Old Testament is historical or prophetic um, and is really more of what happened after the fact similarly the book of acts is the history of the church right it it tells what happened after christ was crucified what did they do how did they try to spread the gospel what kind of structure did they set up and what was the expectation of the disciples to follow through with the mission that christ had given them So the first thing that we get is the reminder that Christ promised the Holy Spirit. And I think that that is significant because it tells you who is in control of the church, who is in charge, and what should you be looking for in any church. And that's the Holy Spirit. That is the most important thing. Let's start with the Holy Spirit. That's what they said when they wrote the book of Acts. Christ promised us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit came. Um, that's not exactly word for word. Don't quote me on that. But that's, a, that's the general gist of the first couple of chapters is talking about how the Holy Spirit came to the disciples. Now, it's interesting because there's a couple of other things that happen in this. I already mentioned there were 120 disciples there. We like to think of it as though only the 12 were following Christ. But a lot of people were following Christ beforehand. The 12 were just his closest people. And of course, at this point, the 12 have become the 11 because Judas betrayed Christ and is no longer a part of this inner circle. Now, 12 is a biblical number. It's one of those numbers of God. It represents, you know, um, 
some sort of uh, nation or community. Um, it, you know, you have the 12 tribes of Israel. Similarly, you have the 12 disciples. And so he, he, he deals in 12s to create like some sort of complete nation. Um, and so he didn't just leave it at 11. Um, they decided they needed 12. Christ said that this was the work for 12 people. And so they nominated two people who had been there the whole time that were of, you know, good moral standing and had been, you know, proven to be, um, you know, on par or devoted to Christ's teachings. And they pray over it and determine who they will use to replace Judas. And it's important to remember that they prayed over this, that the Holy Spirit is still guiding these actions. Um, also in this section, they talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit and that being more important than water baptism. I wanted to put that out there because having grown up in a Baptist church, um, I definitely have heard my share of things where people get super in a bunch about being dunked under the water. And while I think it's great to be dunked under the water, um, the Bible itself tells you that being baptized with the Holy Spirit is more important than um, the symbolic gesture of being baptized with water. So um, you definitely, um, there are definitely people out there who have been dunked under the water that have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit. I am guessing it would be a controversial statement to say there are probably people who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit that have not been baptized with water. But I believe that that is true, mainly because of the thief on the cross. Um, he was saved. And well, I guess the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. So I can't really say he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, but I do think that you know, if you surrender to Christ, there is a possibility that you could probably be baptized by the Holy Spirit before you go under the water. I'm not sure, um, but I do definitely know that you can be baptized by the water and not be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So whatever, however all of that works, you definitely want to make sure that you are baptized with the Holy Spirit because that is the important baptism. And that is what the apostles came together for um, at Pentecost. And so it's really interesting um, because there was a great sign that they had been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And I find it interesting because I don't really think we've seen this kind of sign in modern history. Um, so when the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples at Pentecost, they all begin speaking in tongues. So they start speaking in the native languages of all the people around them. For me, it's easiest to picture the scenario as though it's happening in like New York City or somewhere that is extremely um, diverse culturally. And you come out, you know, and you have people from all over the world. You have people from India and people from China and from, um, you know, the Middle East, from like Iran or, you know, the United Arab Emirates. And you have people from France and from Italy and people from Africa, from Nigeria, from, uh, 
you know, Kenya, people from South America, from Brazil or from Colombia, and then you have people from the United States and you start talking and somebody speaking in Chinese, even though they didn't know Chinese and somebody speaking in Italian and somebody is speaking in Yorba and somebody is speaking in Arabic and somebody is speaking in Hebrew and all of these people miraculously can just understand what you're saying. And I imagine that was shocking both for the disciples. Um, it's recorded that it was shocking for the people who were uh, listening, but I would be shocked if all of a sudden I started talking to you guys and suddenly it's coming out in another language, I would be like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Why couldn't I have done this in college when I was taking a foreign language? That is the ultimate question, right? So, <laughs> um, tongues is, an interesting thing. Um, I I think it's interesting because this is the sign that is given at the time that they are given the Holy Spirit. And some people have taken this to another extreme that uh, if you don't speak in tongues, you are not baptized of the Holy Spirit. Um, there are definitely congregations and denominations that believe this. And because of this, you also have people who speak um, I don't want to say in gibberish. I don't want to invalidate whether people are actually speaking in tongues or not because it is not for me to say. I cannot judge um, what they are or are not saying and where it is or is not coming from. But people start speaking, you know, to quote unquote prove that they have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, um, it's a very, very touchy thing. It's always bothered me because um, one of the places, I guess, where it bothers me the most is in uh, contemporary music, more so in gospel. So in gospel Christian music, you will listen and in the middle of the song, they'll just start saying something. And it's definitely not English. The whole song is in English and all of a sudden they're saying something and it's not in a earthly language. It's either tongues or it's gibberish that they made up in the moment. Um, it's one of the two, right? Which it is, is between them and God. But the thing is, don't nobody know what you're saying. And <laughs> the catch with tongues is that if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it starts talking um, in depth about tongues. And it does confirm that tongues does not have to be an earthly language. There are instances like this one in Acts where you see that the disciples are speaking something that is beneficial to the spreading of the word, right? I can't spread the word to somebody in China that doesn't speak English because I don't speak Chinese. So I would need the gift of tongues to miraculously be able to start speaking Chinese if I was going to witness to that person. So... Um, you know, that's one way, but there is a verse that talks about it being a mysterious language, a language from a person to God and not necessarily, um, to man. But in that same chapter, it says that you're not supposed to speak it aloud unless there's somebody there to interpret it. Um, and that's really the, the heart of the problem I have with the gospel songs I've heard where they are 
speaking in tongues. We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're speaking in tongues. And there's no translation. After they say it, they don't come back and say, this is what I said. And I don't find on the internet, because I have looked, trust me, we live in the era of Google. I have Googled it and I've asked, you know, like, what are they saying? And there aren't people who are just like, oh yeah, this is what they said, um, you know, confirming or translating what has been said. But it seems in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that if you have a message in tongues, that there should also be a person there that can translate this message. And that's, a, it's a major theme within the book of Acts, as we'll see that when Christ calls the church the body, the body of Christ is the church. And um, we, each member has a function, right? So you have people who can speak tongues and you have people who can interpret tongues. It's all supposed to work together. So if you have a person there who's speaking it, there should also be a person there that is interpreting it. And based on the text, it seems like it's a controlled thing. It doesn't seem like something that should just outburst, you know, like people shout or people, you know, as they say, they catch the Holy Spirit and they just start, you know, behaving erratically, um, which seems a little bit more like possession um, than anything else. Like, it seems... <laughs> as though it is known to the person who is going to speak the message whether or not there's someone in the congregation that will be able to interpret it because Paul tells us if if no one can interpret it don't say it well how do you know that someone can interpret it unless you say it either you know the people in your congregation well and you know that there is this person who is known to interpret tongues the way you know, Jacob and Daniel were able, Jacob, Joseph and Daniel were able to interpret dreams, right? Like you just know these people do that. Um, or, you know, there was some sort of um, manifestation. Maybe the Holy Spirit is telling somebody like, you know, it, it just tells you. I don't know. But either way, there has to be a manner in which you can assess like, hey, there's somebody here who can interpret the message. I'm going to say it out loud. And hey, I have this message. God's putting these words in my mind, but there is no one here to interpret it. So I'm not going to say it, right? Or to be able to say like, hey, does anybody interpret tongues? I think I have a message. And then if no one says anything, then it's like, okay, well, we'll wait until somebody who has tongues appears and then I'll share the message with them and they can interpret it. Um, but because people are just blurting things out, it makes me wonder, one, have they read this verse about the interpretation? And two, where is it coming from? And I think that that's something, again, like I said, that gets lost because we don't ever talk about the book of Acts in church. At least I've never gone to a place where um, this is a common discussion within the congregation. And so I wanted to point that out. Um, because I think it is definitely one of the things in our modern congregation that is often, uh, I don't know, looked over, glanced over, misinterpreted, et cetera, et cetera. So the next thing I want to talk about is how the church behaved um, towards one, one another. In today's society, we consider the word church to be 
a noun referring to a building but no one in the bible would have referred to a building as a church the church is the body the body of christ is the church the church is the body of christ it is a community it is a group of people um coming together and throughout um the book of acts you'll see a lot about fellowship a lot of you know breaking bread coming together praying together uh learning together 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 um <laughs> That is the church. The church is togetherness. And so um, that is definitely a deviation because in today's society, most people just attend a building once a week. And there's a chance that you don't know any of those people outside of those walls. Um, I can honestly say for the congregation that I attend, Within the young adult group, I feel like it is a legitimate church where it is a community and we meet and see each other outside of, you know, this formal service that people incorrectly label church. And, um, you know, there's a lot of communication and a lot of um, personal relationship within that. But when I think about the congregation as a whole, you know, there are people I speak to every week and I have no idea what their name is. I don't know where they live. And when I say I don't know where they live, I don't mean like I've never been to their house. I mean like, I don't know if they live in this city or that city. Um, I'm in South Florida. A lot of people who go to uh, the building that I go to do not necessarily live in the same city as that building is located i don't even live in the same city that that building is located so i don't know i don't even know if they live nearby or if they're commuting i know some people who commute like 30 to 45 minutes to get there it like i don't know we've never had that conversation we never talk outside of it um i don't you know some people i don't know what they do like it's just there's so much that you don't know because you don't have conversations and the way they've structured the service, there's no time for a conversation. It's not it's not set up to facilitate a community, which is not good. That's not how it was. Um, throughout uh, Acts, you will see them constantly telling you they met daily. They met daily and they continued to meet daily. And so these people were basically joined at the hip. They were truly doing life together. It wasn't, oh, I, I saw them once a week or I saw them twice a week. Um, this was every day. Every day they're coming together. They're going to each other's houses. They're sharing meals together. They are, um, you know, t studying the word together. They are spreading the word together. And, you know, I, I, the show notes will be much more in depth because it's way too much to talk about. But there are studies about how important it is to share meals together and um, what that does to a relationship and building it. Even talk. There's even a thing about how it affects your mental health. There's just a lot about that that we don't do that we should be doing. And um, I think it's definitely important to look at how they functioned. Um, and how being together like that allowed them to do things that we can't do today or that we're unable to do. One of the things that I thought was very interesting 
um, a little scary um, from our modern perspective is that it sounds like they had some sort of some form of communal lifestyle. People were selling things, you know, from you know trinkets to parcels of land, and they were taking that money and giving the entire sum of it to the group. So we're not talking about 10%. We're talking about selling your house and taking that whole chunk of money and giving it to the whole group and saying, okay, we're gonna disperse this as people have need and whoever needs it will get it. And it's interesting because in this way, you're making sure that nobody in your congregation is hungry or doing without. And that's really what Christ wanted to see. There there should not be a case where you have, you know, these people in your congregation that are well off. You know, a lot of these celebrity pastors are super rich. There was that one guy who I think that he had his congregation buy him a jet. And then you have people in his congregation that can't pay their bills. That is not what the New Testament church looked like. They were pooling their money to make sure that everybody had something and to make sure that everybody had food, everybody had clothes, everybody had a place to sleep. Um, This is the ultimate definition of family. I mean, think about it. Um, Most people would give the clothes off their back for their child. But would they give that same level of dedication to their neighbor's child? What about the child across town? That's the kind of community that Christ was trying to build. That's what the, com- the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of God is me saying, oh man, you can't afford to, to send your child to daycare? Oh wow, well you know, I don't have a child, so let me pay for you to send your child to daycare because I have a surplus. So I'm just gonna give you all of that surplus and help you to, you know, to do what you need to do. Or me to be like, I'll watch your child because I don't have anything to do or I'm able to. Um, you know, doing something like that and and creating a community. Now I have I could go on and on and on for days about this and I'll probably try to write like a um, a post about it or to go into more depth on the blog, but I don't want to make this episode too long. So I'm not going to go too very much in depth there. I just want to point out that um, there was a spirit of giving within the New Testament church. And it wasn't, you know, scaring people into giving. It was not a tithing system. It was a free giving of whatever they had um, for the good of the group. And the reason that they could do that is because they had these intimate relationships with each other where they were friends with each other. They were like brothers and sisters. They were seeing each other on a daily basis. So they knew that this person was in need as opposed to the system that we have today where I see you once a week. I have no idea where you live. You could not even have a house. You could be, you know, in an abusive house. You you could be living in a homeless shelter and catching the bus to show up at the building that we worship in. And I don't know, because I don't really talk to you like that. That is literally what our 
you know, church life looks like today. And that's not how it's supposed to be. And so I definitely encourage you to go with me through the book of Acts. This is just a taste. Um, this is roughly uh, Acts 1 through probably 4. I read Acts 1 through 6, but I didn't get to the persecution of the church. I think I'm going to save that for the next episode because this episode's already a little longer than I usually do. Um, so in the next episode, I'll probably talk about the persecution and the growth. And I'll probably go a little bit back into the meeting um, together because I want to talk about how that relates to the growth of the church. But um, so yeah, I would say that you know, if you want to follow along, read Acts 1 through 6. I'll probably still be um, going through like 4 through 6, 7. I'll probably include 7 in that um, for the next episode. And we will continue looking at how we went from that New, Te New Testament church into what we have today. I hope this has been um, enlightening. I hope you're as excited about this as I am. And um as always, I will post extra notes on the blog. These episodes will probably have a lot more show notes because there's a lot that I just can't get into. And I'll probably post links for, you know, verification or for historical purposes. Um, so I definitely encourage you to go to the blog, www.psalmstogod.com and um, check that out. Also, um, just a side note, uh, the blog, the site or the brand, I don't really know what to say, basically went through a rebranding. I'm still working on the website itself. So it has the old logo and things like that still. Um, I created its own Instagram, Pinterest, and Facebook page. So if you would like to follow um, on social media, it's Psalms underscore to underscore God on Instagram or Psalms to God seven on Facebook and on Pinterest. Um, and you can always follow along. Can't wait to talk to you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.